I want to start by just acknowledging some of my colleagues whose thinking has played a role in shaping uh, this particular talk tonight. Uh, academia is always a collaborative endeavour, and this is no exception. So Professor James Stanier, Catherine R. Baker, who's a PhD student of mine, Professor Christian Vakari, and Andy Ross, who is another PhD student of mine. I want to start with a quick question. So this is a friendly educational setting. So uh, I hope you don't mind this. Um, hopefully you won't find it too difficult to answer. Have you ever been deceived? Please raise your hand if you've been deceived. I thought that would be the uh, response. Now, when you realised you'd been deceived, did you feel a bit embarrassed about it? Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, hold that thought for now. You might be thinking, well, why all these questions? I'm here for... A a lecture, give me some answers, not questions. Well, there are good reasons why I've started with these questions. It's because there are two fundamental points I'd like to begin with about deception. First, deception is fundamental to the human condition. This isn't because everybody lies all of the time. Deception isn't the same thing as lying, and I'll come to that point soon. The reason deception is fundamental to the human condition is because most people, most of the time, believe that other entities, be they people, organisations, media, news reports, even estate agents and politicians, are basically truthful most of the time. So some so social psychologists, such as Tim Levine, have shown that most people have what we call a truth bias or a truth default. Most people assume that others are honest and telling the truth. And if you think about it, most of the time, this is a good way to be. It's an accurate perception of how the world is. If we had to behave as if others are lying all of the time, it would be exhausting. Most people do tell the truth. Surveys show that in many countries around the world. Most people occasionally tell little lies. Some people frequently tell little lies, but very few people tell big lies, and even fewer people tell big lies all of the time. But the problem is, is that that truth bias that we have also comes with a cost, because our assumption that others are honest makes us vulnerable, most of us vulnerable, to deception at least some of the time. And it makes us vulnerable when others are really determined to deceive us. And since a small minority of people and organisations do spend quite a lot of time and other resources, including money, trying to deceive us, this makes all of us vulnerable at some point. So hold that thought before we start judging ourselves too harshly and judging other people for being deceived. The second point I'd like to make about um, deception at the, the level of individual experience starts to broaden out into its social implications, and it explains a lot to do, I think, with um, why deception is such a useful strategy, particularly for certain political elites. The second point is that admitting we've been deceived usually involves some loss, either of social status, social identity, or both. This is a bit more complicated, this point, so I'll explain. Now, understandably, we're likely to feel upset, angry when we fall prey to deception. 
We're also likely to feel some embarrassment at having been taken in. How could I have been so foolish and gullible? Why didn't I spot the signals? The things I took for granted have melted away, and I'm a failure. These are all very common experiences of being deceived, both at interpersonal, in interpersonal relationships, but also uh, when it comes to bigger public issues as well, I would argue. So to illustrate this point, let's consider an example. This is Charles Ponzi, the notorious banker turned financial fraudster and, of course, inventor of the eponymous Ponzi scheme. I'm not going to go into detail about what a Ponzi scheme is, but if you haven't heard about it, it's a financial scam based on the continuous deception of new investors whose money is funneled to previously deceived investors without any investor ever owning any tangible assets, apart from, of course, the fraudster, him or herself, at the top of the pyramid. In 1954, the great sociologist Irving Goffman wrote a fascinating article about this, uh, the characteristics of financial deception. The article was called On Cooling the Mark Out, Some Aspects of Adaptation to Failure. Goffman used the example of what professional fraudsters do when they've successfully tricked someone into handing over money in a gambling scam. Now, in street slang, the person who's the target of a gambling scam is known as a mark. You may have heard that before. The process of cooling the mark in Goffman's title is when the con artist sends an accomplice to talk to the poor deceived person, the mark, soon after the deception has happened. The aim is to cool the mark down to remind the mark of the drawbacks of going to the police or publicising that they've been conned. So the con artist's accomplice is there to show the mark that there are good reasons to avoid admitting to others that they've been deceived. It'll be embarrassing. It won't do you any good anyway. You should just move on, go home, and so on. Goffman's point underpins this basic aspect of deception. There are strong incentives to avoid admitting, perhaps even to ourselves, that we've been misled or we're in some state of ignorance about the world. Deception is a social process. It thrives in contexts where people are keen to retain their social status or their social identity or both. We can gain status and social identity, even social solidarity, by continuing with false beliefs. This is what the legal scholar Daniel Kahan has termed identity protective cognition. I'll say a bit more about that later on. It's why we often choose collective identity, even if it conflicts with the best available evidence at the time. And it's why we're susceptible to choosing tribe over truth, as Kahan puts it. Tribe over truth. Yet given that so many areas of social, economic, and of course political life are shaped by the desire to achieve social status and to maintain our social identities, this makes deception a particularly difficult problem to solve in our media systems, in politics, in society, in interpersonal interactions, online, and so on. So beyond those two points... I want to turn now to, 
to trying to say something about defining deception, it's surprisingly difficult to identify and measure. It's often better to start by saying what deception is not, so I'll do that. First, deception is not lying or lies. Lying, of course, plays an important role in deception, but lying's mere existence doesn't mean that people are deceived. If it did, I'd argue that we'd be in much greater trouble as a society than we are today. Nor is deception a lack of knowledge. There are all kinds of things about which I lack knowledge, how to make the best daiquiri cocktail or the precise size of the North Sea, but I haven't been deceived about those things. I'm just not knowledgeable about them. Nor is deception secrecy. Deception often involves secrecy, but it's possible to keep secrets in a way that doesn't mislead others or harm others' interests. I'm sure that we've all had examples of that in our lives. And finally, um, nor is deception disinformation or misinformation. Now, this one's a little bit more tricky because you've probably heard these, these words uh, bandied around a lot over the last five or six years because of the explosion of research in this field, uh, and I'm a participant in that uh, field as well. It's a bit more tricky, so bear with me. Over the last few years, it's become common to make a distinction, especially social scientists, to make a distinction between misinformation and disinformation. Disinformation is often portrayed as intentional and misinformation as unintentional. So depending on the case, these terms have been used either as verbs to describe behaviours, spreading things, for instance, or nouns to de describe the quality of the information itself, bad quality information. Now this is a good and useful distinction but the mere existence of disinformation or misinformation doesn't necessarily mean that people are deceived and change their attitudes and behaviour. In fact, a long-standing challenge for political communication researchers like me is how to identify when an intention to deceive actually results in deception. It's really difficult. So historically, accounts of propaganda, for instance, are often highly detailed about attempts to deceive, the content of the messages, the symbols, and so on. But the acceptance of meaning, how people actually perceive the messages, can't just be inferred from the content of the propaganda messages. And on the other side of the coin, accounts of beliefs such as conspiracy theories are strong on the psychological biases that make people susceptible to false beliefs, but they often don't have very much to say about who introduces false information such as conspiracy theories in the first place. They don't have much to say about how some people and organisations try to activate our psychological biases to mobilise opinion and gain power. The biases that make us susceptible to deception are put there by our past experiences, I argue, and our social interactions. So what all of this means is that to understand deception as a distinctive thing, we need to understand social interactions, and we need to understand how deceivers can actively shape the context of communication to achieve their goals of deception and changing people's attitudes and behaviours. So with those principles in mind, where does that leave us? Well, I like to think of deception as a conceptual bridge. It's the bridge that links together intentions, interactions, and outcomes. 
So the intentions can be those of people, organizations, or other entities, even technologies, for example, such as an automated fake social media account. The interactions are the wide varieties of types of communication between deceivers and the deceived, and the outcomes are changes in attitudes or behaviors. So in my view, deception is best understood not as all of those things that I said it wasn't, but as when an identifiable entity's intention to mislead results in attitudinal or behavioral outcomes that correspond with the intention. So that's the kind of definition of deception that I like to work with because it's more precise than a lot of the social science literature that we come across on misinformation and disinformation. So far, so good, but like most simple definitions, when you start to expand on the detail, of course, things soon get more complicated. In the rest of the talk, I'm going to talk you through five varieties of deception. Then I'm going to say something about why deception is bad for democracy, and I'm going to close with some broad principles for how we might fight back. So my first variety involves rhetoric. The first thing to say here is that barefaced lies are rare. Complex combinations of, of true and false information matter more in this game. Deception can involve lots of different techniques beyond the direct promotion of falsehoods. These include withholding information, switching topic, strategic ambiguity, diversions, deflections, generating counterfactual or conditional versions of events that can make belief in falsehoods more comfortable for people. And deception can also arise when evidence that reduces false beliefs doesn't become current and available. So in this way, it can operate through what some political scientists have called non-decisions. So a non-decision is when you deliberately limit the scope of political decision-making to avoid dealing with issues in ways that might reduce support for your cause or your interests. So deception can operate in that way. I want to give you an example, a very recent example, um, on this day, very apposite, actually, given it's the uh, local elections. Let's consider one example. During December 2019, in the UK general election campaign, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, repeatedly claimed that the government would, and I quote, build 40 new hospitals by 2030. At the time, he left out the information that funding was only in place for six hospitals, as an investigation by the Guardian newspaper revealed soon after the election. But after that, things got murkier still. Last December, BBC News reality check team of fact checkers analysed the government's pledge to build 40 new hospitals. The journalists there discovered an obscure document issued in August 2021 by the Department of Health and Social Care. This document set out guidance to NHS trusts on what it called, and I quote, the key media lines to use when responding to questions about the pledge to build 40 new hospitals. The government document defined a new hospital in many different and rather strange ways, but these came under three broad headings. First of all, a whole new hospital on a new site or current NHS land. Secondly, a major new clinical building on an existing site or a new wing of an existing hospital. And thirdly, a major refurbishment. Now, here's the important point. 
The government document said that there was a wide variety of schemes, but, and I quote, they must always be referred to as a new hospital in all press and public relations communication. Now, when the BBC asked the Department of Health how many entirely new hospitals were being built, an official spokesperson replied, and I quote, we have committed to build 48 hospitals by 2030, backed by an initial 3.7 billion pounds. So now it was 48 hospitals, but note the phrases, committed to, and backed by an initial 3.7 billion pounds, not currently being built, not enough money, and only initial money. So after much research, which involved the BBC writing to all NHS trusts across the land, BBC News established that on current plans, only three new hospitals were definitely going to be built by 2030. Not 48, not 40, but three. Two of those are general hospitals. One is a non-urgent care hospital. And those two general hospitals were already being built and were due to open before the Prime Minister's pledge to build 40 new hospitals. Incidentally, those two still haven't opened because they've been beset by delays. So what do we see here? Several aspects of rhetoric. First, complex combinations of true and false information. There is a programme of new building underway in the NHS, but entirely new hospitals are only a small part of it. Secondly, strategic ambiguity. The funding isn't in place for the entire programme. It's an initial 3.7 billion and not enough for 48 building projects, let alone hospitals. The cost would be far higher and only two have been approved. Diversions and deflections and counterfactual versions. In this case, the use of definitions most people wouldn't recognise in everyday language but feel truthy when repeated. So is an extension to or a refurbishment to a hospital actually a new hospital? If you added a conservatory to the back of your house, would you tell all of your friends that you have a new house? Probably not. Concealing or withholding information, especially over time, it was only when BBC News quizzed the government that it revealed information that was potentially misleading. My next variety of deception is a bit tricky. It's willful ignorance. It's a special category, and I'll explain why. Again, this doesn't involve the direct promotion of falsehoods. The kind of deception of this kind can be structurally organised in advance by those in positions of power. Some of you may have come across this before. So in famous investigations such as the Nuremberg trials, the Watergate investigations in the United States in the early 1970s, the Enron fraud trial in the mid-2000s, willful ignorance was established as a key theme. These investigations tried to establish not only who knew what and when, but also whether those in positions of power deliberately avoided exposure to evidence so they could claim that at the time they couldn't possibly have known the harmful consequences of their actions. So consider two areas. One is tobacco advertising, the other is climate change, where history has shown that organised interests have promoted uncertainty to deceive others and bolster their self-interest in pursuing a socially harmful course of action. Tobacco advertising deceived many people from the 1950s to the 2000s, including my dad, 
when the harms of cigarettes were well known to tobacco companies but were buried. Climate denial campaigns funded by carbon-intensive industrial interests have also deceived many people into thinking that climate change is not real. Now, the complexity of modern organisations makes willful ignorance easier to achieve because lots of tasks in modern bureaucratic organisations are fragmented. It becomes difficult to identify who's responsible for decisions. And for this reason, of course, international law relating to war crimes, much in the news right now for good reasons, tries to clearly hold individuals to account rather than organisations. This is a picture of Walter Funk. Funk was a junior minister at the Nazi Ministry of Propaganda from 1933 to 1938. He then became Minister for Economic Affairs and President of the State Bank in Germany until the end of the Nazi regime in 1945. Now, at the Nuremberg trials in 1946, the US prosecutor, Robert Jackson, famously called Funk, and I quote, the banker of gold teeth. When Minister for Economic Affairs, Funk had processed shipments of gold, including dental repairs that had been removed from the bodies of victims of the Nazi death camps. Despite being involved in Hitler's government at the senior level for 12 years, at Nuremberg, Funk denied he knew the origins of the shipments of gold teeth he received into the Bundesbank, and he pleaded ignorance of the atrocities in the death camps. In its judgment, the Nuremberg Tribunal said, and I quote, Funk either knew what was being received or was deliberately closing his eyes to what was being done. So the key point here is that Funk's deliberate closing of his eyes to what was being done depended on his knowing what was being done. And that's willful ignorance. Closing your eyes when you know what it is you've seen. So... A particularly difficult category of deception, but one that's really important, and is likely to be important, I would argue, in any future public inquiry into the coronavirus pandemic and its effects. My third variety is deception by manipulating social identities. For these kinds of strategies I've talked about so far to work, they need to operate in a favourable context. And earlier, I briefly mentioned Dan Kahan's theory of identity-protective cognition, tribe over truth. Individuals tend to process information in ways that help them maintain status, a sense of belonging, and their so social and political identity. They resist information that contradicts the dominant beliefs of their social tribe. We're all susceptible to this. But by recognising this bias, elites can, over time, increase the circulation of false signals about how one social group in society is supposedly threatened by another social group. Leaders can exaggerate what we call in social psychology out-group threats, the fear of the other. So, for example, in the United States, many conservative Republican politicians have long traded in signals of threats from ethnic minority and immigrant communities as a way to encourage white group, white in-group identity from which they benefit politically in certain parts of the country. 
But this strategy of manipulating signals to reinforce identity and divisions has been used recently in a far more surprising way because the Russian state, via its internet research agency, used it during its campaign of online interference in the 2016 presidential election. So I'll show you that now. So the Russian state operatives recognized the importance of stimulating engagement through social media behavior, such as clicks, likes, and retweets. And much of this relied on reinforcing social divisions between different social groups in US society. Between 2015 and 2017, the numbers are staggering. 31 million US Facebook users shared the Russian Internet Research Agency's Facebook and Instagram posts with their social media networks. These posts were liked, clicked on like, almost 30 million, 39 million times and received emoji reactions about five and a half million times and generated three and a half million comments. The Instagram posts alone received 185 million likes and four million comments. All of these data, by, by the way, come from the US Congress investigation. This is deception. There's intention, interactive process, and behavioral outcomes, people sharing, clicking, liking, smiling emojis, etc. I could go into far more detail about this, and I'm happy to answer questions in Q&A if you, if you like, but in the interest of time, I'll move on to some examples. So these are some examples of the social media posts that the Russian Internet Research Agency uh, posted onto Instagram and Facebook. Those themes, you know, religion, American identity, but also black American identity as well. The themes on social media were incredibly diverse, pro-left, pro-right, politically, religion, misogyny, racism, pro-black, pro-LGBT, anti-immigrant. These themes were carefully chosen to increase political division and to fire people up to activate that tribe over truth and to pit groups against each other in American society. So that reinforcing or manipulating social identities can be used not just in the ways that you'd expect in mainstream politics. My fourth variety, again, goes a bit deeper into how all of this works. What makes the context work? So if increasing false signals about threats can deceive people and then influence their behavior online, how does this work? Well, an important one is what researchers call fluency. And I'll explain this because it's not as straightforward as it seems. Fluency is a sense of how we feel when we think. So if you imagine when you've got new information to process, you're doing it at the cognitive level, you're trying to make sense of the information, but it also has an emotional impact on you that matters. Because how we feel about a task comes to shape our approach to making sense of the task, which in this case is processing new information. If we find a task difficult, processing information that we haven't encountered before, we'll associate the task with negative feelings and mentally flag the information for further scrutiny. The flip side of this is when we find processing information easy because we've encountered it before, perhaps, we're more likely to hold positive feelings toward the task and we're more likely, and this is the key point, to accept the information, even if it's false. 
So repeated exposure to information over time increases our sense of fluency because we feel more comfortable with the information and therefore it increases our credulity, the extent to which we'll believe something. Now, this is the so-called illusory truth effect, and it, it was first established in the Second World War. It goes back a long way when social psychologists did some early studies of the diffusion of rumours during wartime. Repeated exposure to false information reduces people's ethical dilemmas about sharing it as well. So it's not just that we feel comfortable with it, we're also more likely to share it. We think either intuitively or incorrectly in this case, we perceive that the false information has a ring of truth about it, so it's okay to share it, or it's already out there, so it's okay to share it. So you feel you have an ethical license to share it. I mean, if you think about it, this is how gossip works, right? But the illusory truth effect also creates opportunities for deceivers to create false impressions of other people's beliefs and actions. So repeatedly exposing people to false information can increase its acceptance and stimulate people to act. So examples of this abound online from so-called astroturfing, where you create fake campaigns online in order to generate enthusiasm around a product or a politician or a particular cause, um, to so-called sock puppets, the creation of multiple fake accounts, which, as I say, the Russians have done a lot of over the years, but they're far from the only ones. What these methods exploit are online recommendation technologies, which is what we call social endorsement cues. So if you write a good review for a product or you, you know, sort of like one of Boris Johnson's tweets or, you know, you uh, put a smiling emoji on something that, uh, you know, your local councillor, uh, you know, tweets online or whatever, that's an endorsement cue. You're doing it because you want to send a signal to others about your opinion of that particular act or utterance. But the problem is, is that in today's media systems, these endorsement cues are super important for, for how people make decisions in many different areas of their lives. So over the last two years, I've been an advisor uh, to the Department for Digital uh, Media and Sport on issues such as disinformation and fake news. And one of the things that we've talked about, for instance, in relation to the issue of vaccine hesitancy toward coronavirus vaccines, is how we can uh, use social endorsement to encourage more people to learn about the vaccines and take the vaccines up because they're a really effective measure for public health. But we're fighting, and DCMS is always fighting this battle, and it's there in the online safety bill that is going through Parliament right now, about the, the fakery that's involved in, on, in the online world where these kinds of social endorsement cues can be hijacked, whether it's fake reviews for products all the way up to politicians deliberately uh, using armies of um, supporters on social media that are based on fake accounts. So... With that in mind, I will turn to my final um, variety of deception that again builds on what I've just said. And this is manipulating source credibility. Now, you might be thinking, oh, I'm not going to be taken in by these techniques. You know, I can spot a fake review. I know when the tweet's not real. Well, because you use trustworthy sources of information, right? You think, oh, no, I spend a lot of time looking at BBC News. I, I'm well informed about the world. Well, 
You're absolutely right. The person, the organization, the channel through which messages are conveyed, we know that those things are really important for people's judgments. But the problem, and this is the key problem, is that as media technologies have changed, how we judge the credibility of sources has also changed. And the credibility of a source can be manufactured in various new ways that lead to deception. So broadly speaking, most people in British society still think that established news organisations that have editors, such as the New York Times or the Guardian or the BBC, uh, are trustworthy. However, when a news organisation isn't well-known or established, studies have shown that other kinds of cues that are unique to online news become more important for how we judge credibility. And these cues can convince audiences that news stories are credible, even if they're not. So one example is so-called recency cues. So something that signals, such as the time of an article on a website, something that signals how recent the article is. They matter for how seriously people will treat the news story. Popularity cues, our old friend, the likes, the retweets, the smiling emojis, they matter as well. But so too do comments underneath a news article. Multiple comments on a news article can affect how people perceive its credibility. Experiments in media and communication research going back 10 years have showed this. Negative comments are particularly powerful for some reason. They tend to undermine the credibility of perfectly credible stories written by perfectly credible journalists. So, of course, this opens up opportunities for people to organise themselves, to manipulate these contexts, to signal to others in ways that undermine the credibility of messages that they don't agree with or they want to undermine for political reasons. The way that news organisations gather their sources has also changed dramatically over recent years. Perhaps there's one or two journalists in the room, who knows? News organisations now routinely use online sources, particularly social media posts, in their storytelling. But the problem is that this makes journalists, and indirectly us, more vulnerable to deception. A source can be believed to be credible by multiple news outlets, fool editors of those organisations, and then be accepted by audiences that believe the news organisation itself to be trustworthy. So to give you an example, some respected news organisations, including The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post, big names in news, have unwittingly, over the last five years, embedded, fabricated social media posts, particularly tweets, as vox pop quotes in their stories in order to, you know, add a bit of colour or add a bit of interest, you know, it's the equivalent of walking down the street and asking somebody what they think about the, you know, inflation or whatever, and journalists have long used vox pops. But when they're online and they're super accessible and super convenient, and there is a norm that they should be embedded in news stories from now on, that creates vulnerabilities. In 2020, freelance journalists were unwitting recruits to yet another Russian state disinformation campaign that was revealed by the organization Graphica in the US. The Russian state had seeded false news stories into left-wing Facebook groups in the US and the UK. 
They'd hired journalists, freelance journalists, to write the stories. They'd paid them to do it. And then they said, we want you to post them into Facebook groups to try and spread fake ideas around the war in Syria, Afghanistan, all kinds of different causes. So the key point here is that online, deceivers can quickly adapt their tactics to the context now. And the cues that journalists and we look for when we're encountering uh, important events make us more vulnerable. Uh, so all of these things can be faked. And the deception in these cases, in some of the cases, happens when a credible news organization unwittingly reports false information. So I want to turn now to the issue of why does deception undermine democracy? Well, hopefully by now you'll have an idea of some of the varieties of deception. And I want to think about this impact on democracy briefly um, in two ways. The first is direct. The second is indirect. The first set of impacts are the direct impacts. So deception can undermine individual or group interests. Straightforward. If you're deceived, you can't act with full rationality and push for your interests in the public sphere. can also undermine the capacity for all of us to act as effective citizens. I'll say a little bit more about that shortly because it's not always a question of directly being deceived. It's a question of not being able to distinguish true from false, and feeling lost in a kind of mess of uncertainty that I, th I would argue is as important. And of course, deception can empower those who benefit disproportionately from its outcomes. Deception can also distort public opinion and policy preferences. So if it comes up to an important thing, such as a referendum or an election, and there are deceptive political messages circulating during those important moments that obviously can add up in various complicated ways to how people make a decision on which way to vote. If they're not voting with full awareness, then that can have bad effects because it can distort public opinion and ultimately policy preferences. And there are some people who would argue that, for instance, Brexit is an example of that. I'm not going to go into details about that right now. As I mentioned earlier as well, they can amplify, deception can amplify political divisions and it can be used to deliberately amplify political divisions. The next point here is that, and I think, again, this is a really tricky one, is that deception can beget deception. Political elites have incentives to mislead others if they perceive that there's some power advantage to be gained. And when this happens, deception can spread as a norm or just what it takes to win, you know, in the world of politics. And that's deeply corrosive, I would argue. But then there are all kinds of indirect impacts. First of all, social norms of verifying evidence can start to erode. So consider Donald Trump's strategy of contesting the outcome of the 2020 presidential election on the grounds of false claims that so-called voting fraud led to his defeat. This can erode trust in all kinds of public institutions. It can spread cynicism among other elites, but also among the public. And it can lead to this culture of what I, what I call a culture of indeterminacy, 
where distinguishing between truth and falsehood becomes harder and it leaves us in a state of paralysis. One lesson of the past is that when people become uncertain about the status of public facts, they can withdraw into the private sphere. They can say, politics, that's not for me. They're all the same. They're all lying. I don't want to know. I'm sure we're all aware of these kinds of sentiments. But this was an important strand, actually, of dissident writings in the neo-Stalinist states in Eastern Europe during the Cold War, where the concern was not so much that people would be deceived by propaganda, but that they would withdraw from the public sphere, and, and that would give more power to the political class to go about its own business in a way that it saw fit. And finally, when it comes to indirect impacts, media coverage, of course, of the Russian disinformation campaigns during Western elections and during wartime now, that media coverage has probably reached greater numbers than were actually deceived directly by the activity itself. So this coverage could lead indirectly to perceptions that elections can't be trusted anymore because voters have been manipulated. And again, that's corrosive of liberal democracy. So on that note, before I talk about some broad principles for how we might fight back against this situation, I'll note the thoughts of one of my favourite political theorists, Hannah Arendt, who was so skillful in dissecting the corrosive impact of propaganda and deception. She made this point very succinctly in 1974 in an interview with a journalist at the New York Times. And she said, if everybody lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather that nobody believes anything any longer. A people that no longer can believe anything cannot make up its own mind. It is deprived not only of its capacity to act, but also of its capacity to think and judge. And with such a people, you can then do what you please. And I think that, for me, is in one paragraph, is kind of the, the biggest problem that we face when it comes to deception undermining democracy. How should we try to fight back? Well, hopefully, this talk today which is also being streamed online and will be archived to YouTube, will, in a very small way, provide some kind of educative effect. But that's an important point. I think that the spread of deception in public life, fighting back against that, starts with educating ourselves about the many ways in which it can work. And I see it as the responsibility of social science everywhere, social scientists everywhere, to use their skills to contribute to civic efforts to reduce the prevalence of deception to inform programs of education and promote more ethically responsible practice in the public communication professions and to hold social, economic, cultural and political elites more accountable. So this is a vast area. I'll restrict my remarks to some key principles that I'm going to go through fairly quickly and you'll have a chance in the Q&A to ask me about these. So the first principle is to promote broad understanding of how the nature of deception has changed quite markedly in recent years due to changes in our media systems. And I think communication scholars in particular, and people with an interest in all forms of communication, not just political communication, are in a good position to spread the word about this. Secondly, I think we should focus on empowering people in their everyday social capacities to understand and challenge attempts to deceive, 
And we shouldn't just focus on quick technological fixes to so-called poor quality information. We need to start from the person, not just from the information itself, and try to banish the information from the, from the public sphere. Thirdly, we should recognize how today's media and digital platform business models are often ill-suited to combating deception. Now, that's not to say that uh, Facebook or Twitter uh, turns a blind eye to these problems. Absolutely, it doesn't. And it's, it, a seismic shock has gone through this world since 2016, as you're probably aware. But there comes a point where the fundamentals of harvesting attention on social media in order to generate revenue from advertising clashes with the principle of fighting against deception. Because simply put, there are many, many good reasons why deception through, for instance, emotional appeals, reinforcing or sowing divisions between different political groups, there are good reasons why that makes good business sense for social media companies. So we need to recognize that and build different models. The next point is independently fund investigative journalism and fact-checking. Now, this is already happening, but we could use more of it around the world, not just in Britain. And also fund independent scholarly research. Let's try and avoid research funded on the terms directly dictated by digital platforms, media organizations of other kinds, and, of course, governments. Let's have some independent scholarly research. Platforms themselves have spent hundreds of millions of dollars over the past five or six years funding academic research. Now, most of the time, there are no strings attached, and the terms and conditions of, that, of those contracts are most of the time, thankfully, um, they, they enable academic independence. But as everybody in this room will know, independence is a relational concept. It's not just embedded in legal documents. It's about the expectations that you have when you sign up for research funding. And it's the expectations of the funder who provides the, 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 the funding. So it's a complicated setup. And I think we could use more independent research, independent funding for research, rather. And then finally, a few more points. First of all, establish in law a transparent and shared public national data repository in the UK of social media takedowns and other identified attempts to deceive. Now, this is something that we talked about, as I say, in, in some of the advisory meetings that I've been involved in. Uh, at government level over the last couple of years. Um, sadly, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. I wasn't the only one calling for it. There were fact-checking organizations as well. This would provide transparency and a public record that all would be able to see and analyze. Next is recognize the importance of politics. Provide opportunities to challenge the idea that deception is a norm and just what it takes to win. Because when that norm takes hold, I think we're in trouble. Established nuanced legal frameworks for retrospective public inquiries of all kinds. As I said earlier, willful ignorance is a particularly fascinating but difficult to determine aspect of deception. We need legal frameworks to take these things into account. Some of them already do, but we could use more of it. And finally, to avoid moral panics and unintended indirect effects, try to avoid focusing just on the existence out there on social media of poor quality information. That will be with us forever. 
but instead focus efforts on mitigating deception, where people are actually deceived and modify their be behaviour and their attitudes as a result. Because as I said at the start of the talk, the mere existence of lying, poor quality information does not necessarily mean that people are deceived. And on that more optimistic note, I will close. Thank you very much for listening, and I look forward to your questions. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much for a um, very stimulating um, lecture, which raised all sorts of questions. And um, we're inundated with questions online, and I'm sure there'll be lots of questions in the room as well. I'm going to start off with one of the online questions, uh, which is this. Um, how do we override our truth bias, and why have we not yet evolved to do so? Is it that for most of the people, most of the time, the cost of deception is minimal? Ah, right. Well, that, that's a really good point from the online questioner there. Um, the reason why... I, I think that there are good social evolutionary reasons why we have a truth bias. And as I said in the talk, I'd hate to be in a society where there was absolutely no trust. It couldn't function. Imagine walking down the street. You know, imagine... Oh, is, is that the floor? Are those lights? Is that a bug? You know, you, you've, you've got to have that acceptance in order to cooperate with others and to get things done. Incidentally, the, the, the research literature on, 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 um, on trust is very interesting because actually, contrary to what you might think, it's not the most trusting people that are more gullible. It's actually people who are socially isolated are more gullible. So those people are more gullible because they don't um, learn as well as those who make lots of social relationships in trustworthy ways. They don't learn the cues of deception as well as people who spend a lot of time trusting others. It's actually fascinating. It's sort of counterintuitive, but it's, it's the case. So I would say that, I would say that the, the second part of the question is to do with, um, you know, we have little to to lose from deception. Well, from interpersonal deception where, you, you know, somebody, somebody tells you something about, um, you know, that, that, that might mislead you about your finances or whatever, I think it's not clear-cut in, in all cases that the, the cost can be small. I think the, the cost can be quite serious. But I think at the mass level, the level of mass deception, where you've got significant societal uh, distortions and things like huge public health problems... Uh, caused by people who've been misled about the safety uh, of COVID vaccines, for instance, I, I would say that there is always, there's always a, quite a, a significant cost when it comes to mass deception. That's not to say that everybody's deceived, but it, there could be large sections of society, and that can make a difference not just to their lives, but to all of our lives. Um, so I, I, that would be my response. I'm not sure if I've entirely answered the question, but I hope it went some way towards it. Thank you. So you mentioned in the slide before about, it's probably not going to happen, but publishing those social media takedowns, things like that. If it were to happen, which unfortunately it won't, how would that work and what would it actually look like? Sure. Well, the model that I've got in mind is, is look, we, we know now, and these, these efforts have been accelerated significantly in the last two to three years. We know that content moderation, taking down material, 
uh, happens on, on a minute-by-minute -minute basis across all so social media platforms, big or small. Um, you know, the truly big and important ones that are public, not um, platforms such as WhatsApp, for instance, which is entirely different, but the public platforms, we know that this happens. But the big problem that we've got is getting our hands as researchers on the data and also... Um, there is a question of accountability here. So the, the, the sheer lack of transparency when we don't know when the decisions are being made and how they're being made, and there have been attempts to address this with Facebook, with its oversight board and so on. But only by making these things public can we, first of all, identify more successfully patterns of online deception, but secondly, increase trust in the process by which the public sphere is moderated, its content is moderated. So by doing that and allowing fact-checkers to submit, you know, when fact-checkers, organisations like Full Fact, for instance, do great work, but um, it would be really great to have a, something beyond their website, which is what they've chosen to tell us, and it's all really great stuff, so I'm not criticising them, but it would be really great to have, you know, for them to show their working and kind of publish it and say, well, we came across this, and then we, this led us to that, and we found this. That's what I'm talking about. It's, it's essentially just making the whole issue public, like a public utility, really, in the interests of citizens, citizenship, people who want to go and look at this material. And then we can have an argument about it and have an argument in public. But the problem is that when you've got these very large-scale public utilities, like Facebook, Facebook is as important, I would argue, to our society, not quite, but almost as important as electricity. Yeah. So if you think about it, why shouldn't we have more public-spirited, public-oriented forms of oversight of these large, powerful organisations? Not through censorship, not by government saying, no, you can't publish that, but by opening it up so that we can all then have a look at what's being done and have an argument about it. So I'm going to ask you a question which has, has comes out of that, follows on from what you've just been saying. Um, several people have voted for this question online, um, okay. which is this. Aren't fighting deception and fact-checking just other ways of government censoring what doesn't suit them? <laughs> well, that well, was a very um, good question. Now, it's a really great question. I, I, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to answer that one in a few minutes, but let me try. Look, I think at the end of the day, you know, what we've got to, to realise is that there are, there are categories of speech that are harmful um, to social cohesion, to public health. Um, there are categories of speech that lead to, you know, hate speech, for instance, uh, incitement to racial hatred, those, extreme misogyny online. Um, disinformation-based extremism is a thing. In other words, political extremists who deliberately spread conspiracy theories in order to either destabilise public communication or to advance their own cause in a way that they hope will spread the net as widely as possible so that they will get new adherence to their cause. I think, for me, it's not so much about government um, censorship and telling people what they can and cannot say. It's about recognising that in order to protect the principles of liberal democracy and to make sure that they aren't eroded, there are times when governments have to establish an infrastructure for accountability of speech. 
And I personally don't have a problem with that as long as they are not the only ones who are doing it and they are not the final arbiters in all cases. So a classic example, just to sort of, you know, this is not a new idea by any means, but consider the BBC. So the BBC is one of the most trusted news organisations in the world. Okay, it's had a rocky time in recent times from the political left and the political right, but still, surveys show that it is highly trusted. It's also widely admired around the world for its great um, factual programming, its entertainment, and particularly, of course, its news. Now, it happens to be one of the most well-resourced news organisations in the world, so let's not forget that. But, of course, the BBC operates at arm's length from the British state. It is a creature of the state, but it isn't controlled by the state. And the way in which the BBC operates is set out in law in a series of pieces of legislation that govern things like the licence fee, editorial independence, the board of, of governors, and so on. So if we take that kind of model, the idea of free speech and good quality information and enriching public discourse is not fundamentally incompatible, I would argue, with establishing an infrastructure where we decide collectively what kinds of speech we want to promote and amplify and, and, and are useful for our civic life and what kinds of speech spread hate, disinformation, undermine democracy and undermine people's interests, undermine collective public health and so on. So that's where I draw the line. I don't think there's a fundamental incompatibility between a public infrastructure um, I don't think that's the same thing as censorship and government censorship. But I recognise that, of course, again, with the online safety bill going through Parliament right now, these are very, very live issues, very, very important issues. Can you tell me, how does one determine truth? <laughs> how does one determine truth? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I've, I've got a short period of time and I'm not sure I'd ever be able to answer it <laughs> if I had two hours. But... Look, I, I think, so there are various definitions, aren't there? There's first, a, a long-standing definition is the idea of the marketplace of ideas. So this goes back to the French Revolution in the late 18th century. It's the idea that the best arguments and knowledge will prevail. Um, but the problem with that is that it can be distorted by the ways in which our, the market for the circulation of information can, can be distorted. So... Some people have more power than others to communicate in the public sphere. So the marketplace of ideas can be just something that happens because somebody, you know, it, it sells more. You know, this is, this is a, a classic problem. So that's not the truth. Another definition of the truth that's become not necessarily a definition of the truth, but a definition of what constitutes misinformation. So mis misinformation is often defined as when, when people hold beliefs that contradict the best available authoritative knowledge at the time. Now, in the field of political communication research and in a lot of uh, uh, political psychology research as well, that's a, de a sort of shorthand definition that people use. So the, there are some strengths of this because it establishes the principle of authoritative knowledge. So it involves a recognition that there are social divisions based on expertise and learning, and it assigns more importance to scientific voices and voices of people who are learned. That's simultaneously its weakness, however, because, you know, one of the problems, as we've seen, is that, especially with populist critiques of scientific knowledge, is that people are not often comfortable with being told what to do and how to live their lives. 
So my view is that we probably bump along in the space between where we've got authoritative knowledge, which is continually, of course, being refined and redefined as scientific progress evolves, because science isn't, the, you know, the thing about science and the truth is that the truth isn't there forevermore. You, you know, science is a collective endeavor, and people are always knocking previous theorists and scientists off their perches and saying, no, you got it wrong, and showing, showing that with new evidence. But at the, at the same time, I think that the, the public generally need to be involved in an argument in the public sphere about what constitutes authoritative knowledge. And the more people that we can in, get involved in those kinds of arguments, the closer we'll get to the truth. So that's my answer. It's a kind of that space in between collective public uh, demands and aspirations, but also authoritative scientific knowledge. And I think that's stood us in pretty good stead by and large until we face the problems that we have recently. Uh, it's stood us in, in good stead for most, most of the time since the emergence of liberal democracy across Europe and other parts of the world in the 19th century. Of course, we've got periods of immense barbarity and brutality, such as wars, that have made a huge difference to this, huge setbacks. But I think that um, recently, we, we, now, we are in a... In, in, in a greater mess, I would argue, than certainly I felt uh, during my lifetime, um, you know, since the, since the early 1970s. So I think that there is something that's changed in the nature of how widespread deception is and how it's become more of a norm and it's so easy to, easy to achieve online in ways that were perhaps were more difficult to achieve before the rise of the internet, and that worries me greatly. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have um, time for this evening, but I'm sure that Professor Chadwick will hover around the uh, podium and answer any more questions from the audience in the room. But in the meantime, can we please thank Professor for a really fabulous lecture this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.